Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. One from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 8th. Jonathan Edwards published his most famous sermon, which was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, on this day in 1741. This played out during the First Great Awakening that happened from the 1730s to 1740s, and it was a response to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. Culture in the American colonies had been shifting more towards secularism, and while there were a lot of religious denominations in the colonies, church attendance was dropping, People were more focused on rational thought and taking a more distanced view of religion. This really set the stage, though, for the Great Awakening, which its hallmarks were traveling preachers and ministers whose work was really rooted in Calvinism. A lot of the common themes were the need for all people to seek salvation immediately and urgently, and the total sovereignty of God, and the need for a very personal relationship with Christianity. So these concepts might bring to mind Uh, traveling ministers whose whole experience is maybe having been raised in a very religious household and having had a lot of personal intense study in the Bible and in religion, but not necessarily in a formal way. And while Jonathan Edwards did have a family that was deeply religious, he also was educated at Yale. He graduated from there in 1720 and then continued to study divinity in the area and went on to earn a master's degree. He also served with multiple congregations, and he taught Mohican children at a mission school. As for this sermon of his, he was the pastor of the Church of Christ in Northampton, Massachusetts, when he delivered it. And he delivered it there in Northampton before the publication date that we normally cite with this particular sermon. It starts out with this verse from the book of Deuteronomy, Their foot shall slide in due time. This is describing the Israelites and sort of the idea that they are ultimately going to slide into sin. It's just inevitably going to happen. Here's a quote from it. Quote, There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong enough when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. From there, he goes on to say that these wicked Israelites who were referred to in that Deuteronomy verse, they deserve to be cast into hell. They are already sentenced to being cast into hell. There's a lot of anger and wrath and torment and the devil being ready to seize these sinners. All of this language makes people think of Jonathan Edwards as this fiery, passionate preacher just terrifying his congregation with the idea of eternal damnation as this ever-looming, ever-present threat. But a lot of his preaching was really calm and subdued. Even this sermon, with its very fiery language, was apparently delivered with this very uh, dispassionate, detached, calm demeanor. That's not only, though, his most famous sermon, it's one of the most famous of the entire Great Awakening, So even though this wound up being so famous, Jonathan Edwards actually wound up uh, rubbing his Northampton congregation the wrong way. He was dismissed and preached a farewell sermon there on July 1st of 1750. He did go on to do a lot of other work with other congregations, and from a religious and a spiritual standpoint, he was hugely influential. In general, today's evangelical religions in the United States have a lot in common with what was going on with the Great Awakening, a similar focus on the need for salvation and the need for a personal experience and a need for a personal relationship with God and with Christianity. 
He also wrote tons and tons of other sermons, even though this is the most famous one. There are huge volumes of his work, and almost all of it still exists, with the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale having almost 99% of his complete works in his collection. In addition to all of that, like others of his time, he both condemned the cruelty of the slave trade and also enslaved people himself. And at the very end of his life, he was the president of Princeton for a brief time before dying of smallpox. That might actually have been contracted from a deliberate exposure method that was used to try to get people immune to smallpox before the actual existence of vaccines. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat for her research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison for her editing work on all these episodes. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for a revolution. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was July 8th, 1947. Roswell Army Airfield Public Information Officer Walter Hott issued a press release saying that the mysterious wreckage a rancher discovered was an unidentified flying object. The military debunked theories that the wreckage was a flying saucer, instead it was just a weather balloon and related materials. Despite this, some people believed then and believe now that the debris came from an alien spaceship. In 1947, a rancher named W.W. Mac Brazel and his son Vernon were about 75 miles outside of Roswell, New Mexico, when they saw some unusual debris on their ranch land after a storm. It consisted of a bunch of metallic sticks held together with tape, plastic and foil reflectors, and scraps of shiny material. On July 4th, Brazel gathered the wreckage and a few days later took it to Sheriff George Wilcox. The sheriff didn't know what the materials were either, so he reached out to Colonel William Blanchard, who was a commander of the Roswell Army Airfield's 509th Composite Group. But when he didn't know, the question of what the strange wreckage was was sent up to General Roger W. Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas. Blanchard also sent Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel to the site where the wreckage was to collect more of the materials. On July 8th, the Roswell Army Airfield issued a press release. It said, in part, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers in the sheriff's office of Chaves County. That same day, the Roswell Daily Record ran a story on the discovery. The article was titled, RAAF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. The story began with this sentence. The intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into the possession of a flying saucer. But the next day, the War Department published a statement that the debris was not from a flying saucer, but from a weather balloon. But not everyone believed this explanation. Many people were convinced that the wreckage was somehow linked to aliens. Skepticism grew when the Air Force conducted tests by dropping dummies from balloons, leading people to believe they had seen alien corpses and the government was just covering things up. 
decades after the 1947 discovery, people were still coming forward with alien-related stories about the Roswell incident. The incident had become such a huge topic of debate that the Air Force decided to address misconceptions, rumors, and theories by declassifying and compiling documents. To explain what happened in 1947, the Air Force published the thousand-page The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, in 1994. And in 1997, it published The Roswell Report, Case Closed. It said that the aliens people claimed to see were just test dummies, and the conspiracy surrounding the Roswell incident was heightened by the Cold War and sci-fi sensibilities. The military said the debris was part of Project Mogul, a government program that launched high-altitude balloons in the hopes of monitoring Soviet nuclear tests. The wreckage that had been dubbed a flying saucer decades earlier were the leftovers of neoprene balloons, radar reflectors, and sonic equipment launched from the Alamogordo base. At the time of the incident, the project was highly classified, and the government had to lie and say the debris was from a weather balloon. But Roswell, New Mexico is still a place of interest for UFO enthusiasts and conspiracy theorists who are interested in the Roswell incident. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you haven't gotten your fill of history after listening to today's episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks for showing up. We'll meet here again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.